Well, it's, it's great to be here, and uh, praise God for the worship that we had. That had to be the most masculine-looking worship team I've ever seen. <laughs> it definitely wasn't the prettiest. I was sitting there thinking, <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, you know, it looks like a bunch of old cowboys, bikers, and marines got together and, and said, let's go sing about the Lord. <laughs> oh, praise God. It, it is a great privilege uh, to be here and to talk about, um, we're going to talk about biblical manhood. And I would like us to start, we're going to lay some groundwork, so I'm going to be reading some things and then making comments on them. But I just want us to look at 1 Corinthians 16, just one verse there. And um, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You know, it is amazing that we live in a society where this text would be offensive to many people. That it would even cause some people in evangelical churches to kind of step back for a moment and think, did Paul really say that? Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely astounding. Right here we have the proof the biblical proof, if we believe that 1 Corinthians is more than just the philosophy uh, of an archaic teacher, if we believe that 1 Corinthians is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which I do, that 1 Corinthians it was written infallibly by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have all the proof we need that there is a difference between men and women. This does not make any statement that one gender is inferior or superior to the other. But it does say this, there is a difference between men and women in the mind of God, in God's mind. Because he says here, act like men. Now, the moment we hear that, it seems like our world is filled with so many extremes. Um, in our context, our present day context, we know that, that masculinity is, uh, has suffered a blow. So when we hear act like men, some of us, whose fathers fought in World War II, we automatically go to the other extreme. We're to act like John Wayne or Rocky Marciano or someone like that. And that's not true either. There is one model, one canon, one standard for men, and it is Jesus Christ. We are to be like Jesus Christ. We are to act like Jesus Christ. I don't care what generation you come from. I don't care what your culture is. I don't care if you were 
raised in a high-rise in New York City, on the streets of Los Angeles, or on a ranch in Texas, your standard for acting like a man is a carpenter from Galilee. God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And you can't act like a man if you're ignorant of Him. You can't act like a man if you don't know Him. You can't act like a man unless He is empowering you. In order to act like a man, you must be born again. Now, since the 40s and 50s, the doctrine of regeneration has been turned into little more than a, I think we could call it a philosophy of born-againism. When someone thinks of being born again, the, the first thing that comes into their mind, have you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart? Well, that's not what I mean when I talk about born again. The term born again, as we have in John chapter 3, is talking about the doctrine of regeneration. And the doctrine of, gen of regeneration, in, from what I can see in Scripture, is a powerful and sovereign act of the Almighty God that demonstrates greater power than even the creation of the universe. Because, because God is taking a man that is fallen in Adam, that is corrupt in heart and mind, will and deed, and he is taking that man and making him into a new creature. And before we even get started, you have to ask yourself a question. Has that happened to you? Have you come to a point in your life where you recognize that God was holy and that in his holiness you saw your sin and you saw that there was no possibility whatsoever for you to stand justified before God or accepted to God by your own works. And in your despair and seeing yourself as you truly are, did you then see Christ? And was Christ precious to you? Did you see Christ as your only hope? And do you now see Christ as your only hope? You know what, men? I am 60 years old. And I became a Christian when I was 21. When I became a Christian, my life changed radically. But you know what? I have to be honest with you. When I was a young Christian, I, I thought then that by now, I would have been much more holy than I am. I thought then that I would have made far more progress than I've actually made. If we were to draw a graph, I would say that I thought my sanctification would go something like this. <laughs> but I found that my sanctification has gone something like this. I have grown. I have grown. I live in, in the mountains of Virginia, or in the valley there, and um, we're surrounded by mountains. And when you go up, you don't go up from one elevation to another this way. 
you go from one elevation to another kind of this way. Sometimes it's apparent you're going up. Sometimes it's apparent you're going down. But even when you're going down, if you look at the long haul, you are going up. If you're truly a Christian, there's going to be ups and downs and everything else in your life. But in the long haul, you're going to be making progress. Because it is God who is at work in you. This is all about God demonstrating his power to not only justify you, but to sanctify you. But let me get back to what I said earlier, that when I was a young Christian, I would have thought that I did think that I would be much more like Jesus than I am today. As a matter of fact, the the more I grow, it seems the more I see the discrepancy between me and him. But there is one thing in my life over nearly 40 years that has grown like a skyrocket. Now, as I've said, my sanctification seems to have been kind of like that. But there's one thing in my life that has literally shot through the roof. And you know what that is? It's an important aspect of sanctification that hardly anyone ever talks about. And that is, because of all my struggles and the little progress that I've made, my dependence upon the blood of Christ has shot through the roof. When I got converted, if you'd asked me, is Jesus your only hope? I would have said, yes, he is. And I meant, I would have meant it, but I wouldn't have understood it. Now when you ask me, after 40 years of so little growth and so many failures, is Jesus your only hope? Yes. I have nothing. I have nothing. One of the ways that I know I'm saved is because I know that if Jesus doesn't save me, I'm going to hell. If Jesus' blood is not enough, I'm going to hell. The only thing I've contributed to my salvation is my sin. Even my faith has been a gift from God. I have nothing but Jesus. And and I'm not up here uh, pretending to be humble or that, oh, I'm really pious and this is the way pious people talk. No. My best thoughts, my best day, my best deeds would only earn me hell. I'm saved because Jesus Christ saved sinners, period. And in that, I have grown. In my knowledge of that, I have grown. That's a Christian. That's someone who can act like a man. Someone who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, in whom the Spirit dwells, and the providence of God is ever and always working. And if that's not a reality in your life, then you're just going to be learning principles. And principles are never enough in Christianity. It is the saving work of Christ and Christ alone. So he says, 
act like men. Act like Christ. When, when I became a Christian, I realized I wasn't the brightest crayon in the box. <laughs> I, wasn't the smart, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And I thought, you know, there's so many things to learn in Christianity. And greatest men in the world haven't been able to learn them all. So I thought, I'm going to devote myself to one thing. I'm going to study all the Bible. I'm going to read all the Bible. But I'm going to devote my life to studying the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, before he became incarnate, his incarnation, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his seat at the right hand of God as the God-man and the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I've spent, I've spent so many years studying that one thing. Men, in order to be a man, you need an image of a man in front of you. You need a picture, a right picture of what a man really is. And you can't have that apart from studying Jesus. Studying his, who he is. Studying what he did. Studying what he suffered. Studying how he stood fast. Where he is right now as the God-man reigning at the right hand of his Father. And so we could really just stop here right now and say, go home and study Jesus. Make Jesus your standard, your canon, the goal. Study his life. Look at every situation in which you see him in the New Testament. Look at how he responded. Look at what he said. Look at his attitude. Look at his actions. Look at Christ. There's a story about a, I don't know if it originated in the Appalachians or where it, um, I just remember it as reading a little boy, as a little boy reading it. And it really had an impression upon me that there was this poor town in the mountains and there was a, there was a particular cliff that overlooked the town and it looked like the face of a man, the face of a very strong and and capable and fearless man. And there was a story that one day someone looking like that man would come and deliver that town from all its poverty, all its pain, all its suffering. A little boy heard that story when he was just a little boy. And it captivated in him, captivated him. And he's it wasn't hardly a day in his life that he didn't look up at that cliff and look up at that cliff and look up at that cliff and look up at that cliff. And he always wondered when that man would come. And then one day, it dawned on everyone, that young man had become the man. He looked at that image so often that it became his. Or to look at Jesus. Isaac Ambrose wrote a tremendous book that every one of you should read. It's, it's large, but it's worthy. It's Looking Unto Jesus. Looking Unto Jesus by Isaac Ambrose. And he says, act like men. Act like Christ. Act like Christ. 
Be strong. You know, I, I used to love weightlifting and just all kinds of stuff like that, fighting and, and everything. And there used to be these, I remember I was enamored, I'd see them when I was a young Christian and I'd go to the gym and you'd see these guys who were Christians and they were power lifters or whatever and they'd have shirts on that say bench press this and it would show Jesus, you know, pushing up the cross and everything. And, and um, you know, bless their heart. We just, we twist so many things. How was he strong? How was he strong? In perfect obedience to his father. That's how he was strong. In standing against temptation. In never wavering in his devotion for God. His father. That's how he was strong. I was telling a group of young boys out there tonight, I said, you know, I can remember taking guys into deep jungle and uh, some of them would just, just break down crying. And I remember this one guy and that dude was, he's afraid of his own shadow. And... Um, he was so afraid snakes were going to get him, alligators were going to get him, everything was going to get him. But at the end of his time with me, I think I loved that young man more than all the other guys because he was constantly scared to death. But he went in anyways because he loved Jesus. He went in anyways because he loved those people. So see, when we talk about act like men, well, great, if you can bench press 405, wonderful. But I know a bunch of guys who can bench press 405 and when it comes to obedience, they are weak. When it comes to faithfulness, they're weak. When it comes to integrity, they are weak. This is about, how, do you, how are you strong? How do you act like a man? You follow Jesus. Even when you're afraid, even when you're confused, even when you've fallen, you get back up and you keep following Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And you say, yes, amen. But let me tell you something. You can't follow Jesus if you don't know him. You can't follow him if you don't know his word. I would trade a hundred of these conferences just to have every one of you read five chapters a day in the morning for the rest of your life. You know, there's no, there's, no, there's no mystery about this Christian faith. It's really not. We just don't do the simple things. You know, let's say you came to me and you had a bloody forehead. I mean, it's just bloody all the time. It never heals. It's just bloody, bloody, bloody. It's all broken up and bruised. You've been to every doctor in the world and they can't figure it out. So you come to me. I don't know why, but you come to me. You say, Brother Paul, yeah, uh, I got a problem. I said, yeah, I can see your, your forehead's pretty messed up. He said, doctors can't figure it out. Will you help me? And I said, well, I'm no doctor. I'll watch you a bit and see what's, try to figure out what's going on. So uh, you go to bed that night at midnight, 
And I'm sitting over there in a chair watching you. And all of a sudden, the clock strikes one. You get up out of bed, you walk over to a brick wall, and you slam your head into it one time. And I'm taking notes. (laughs) You go back to bed, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Boom, clock goes up. Ding, ding. You go over there and pound your head against a wall twice. And I'm going, I'm thinking, I'm seeing a pattern. Well, by noon clock strikes 12 and you go over to a wall and you bang your head against a cinder block 12 times and I'm thinking well I'm no doctor but I think I've pretty much figured out what this boy's problem is when people come to me and they go you know brother Paul I just I'm not strong I feel so weak and I I go all right How much time a day are you studying scripture? And are you studying it systematically? Are you reading through the Bible systematically? Do you have a purpose? Are you saturating your life in scripture? Well, no. Well, how much do you pray? Well, I struggle with prayer. Well, there's your problem. It's not a mystery. It's not esoteric, some hidden knowledge. It's not another book you need to buy. You need to get in the book. You need to get on your knees. I was fortunate enough to be born again when there were still some of these old preachers around that said, boy, you just need to get in a word. You just need to pray. Well, it's hard. Well, of course it's hard. You need to have a good friend that every time you say it's hard, he just rears back and slaps you. (laughs) We used to do that in Christianity. I don't know what happened to that, but it was very helpful. Like my wife says, some people just need a high five in the face with a chair. (laughs) Or one of my dear friends, he would go, you know, boys, it ain't rocket science. (laughs) It's not. You neglect the word of God, you're not going to be strong. Hold your breath. Let's see how long you can do that. And see how, how fast you can run a mile. Don't eat for 40 days. Come talk to me about how much you can bench. Do you see what I'm saying? Men, we need to be in the Word. You're saying, I came here for some extraordinary principles. Why do you need extraordinary principles? You just need to obey the fundamentals. You need to read the Word. You young men, you're never going to be strong. With all the media and all the stuff bombarding your brain constantly, all the images, all the TV, all the phones, all the computers, all the games, everything. Really? You think you're going to be strong spiritually by eating that kind of fodder? You're not. He says, be strong. How were they strong in First John, those young men? The word, the word, The Word, the Word. You read from Genesis to Revelation, and when you're finished, you do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. So be strong, he says. And it's the only way. He says, act like men. Stand firm in the faith. How can you stand firm in the faith? Because that's what he means when he says, be strong. Stand firm and your convictions about Jesus Christ and what he has commanded of you and the hope that he set before you. Stand firm in that. How can you do that if you don't know any of it? 
If all your theology and all your doctrine is based upon the choruses you sing, we're moving into a time in our history when you're going to need more than cliche to stand firm. And when I talk about stand firm, never forget this, man. You're not just standing firm for yourself. You're standing firm for your wife. You're standing firm for your children. You're standing firm for your grandchildren. How many children have been ruined? How many wives have been ruined because their father, their husband has fallen? He says, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. He says, be on the alert. Why? Because the devil is like a roaring lion. Constantly prowling. Seeking whom he may devour. I've lived long enough to see a lot of men devoured devoured I was watching a video several years ago it was amazing these guys I guess they were on safari or something and they had some serious big guns I mean something bigger than you would take for even elk hunting I mean and this male lion came out of the bush and charged it was terrifying it was terrifying and even when they shot and hit that thing kept coming kept coming I remember one time hog hunting down in uh, South Carolina man I split that hog's heart in two and that thing I was on the ground and it kept coming finally had to put a round in its head I thought that thing's going to eat me it's terrifying I mean it's exciting get your adrenaline going And all your buddies have a laugh because that look on your face stays for about 24 hours of sheer terror. (laughs) But it's terrifying when a wild animal much larger than you charges you. It's terrifying. I've heard young men say, I'm afraid of the devil. And I say, you've never looked down the mouth of that beast, son. He devours nations. And he'd devour each one of us in a second if it wasn't for the grace of God. But at the same time, we're not to sit there and just presume upon the grace of God. We're to be studying Scripture. Because that roaring lion not only wants to devour me, he wants to devour every good thing that could happen through me. He wants to destroy every good thing that may have already happened through me. He wants to destroy my wife. He wants to destroy my children. He wants to destroy my grandchildren. And men, I want you to think about something. I mean, the older you get, you start realizing something. This is not a game. You start realizing something. Those gates are getting closer and closer. The finish line is getting closer and closer. This is serious. I need to walk circumspectly. I need to be careful. I am going to stand before him very, very soon. You say the blood of Jesus Christ will cover you. Absolutely, that's our only hope. But men, don't you want to stand there? At least knowing that you gave it all. That you stood firm. That you acted with strength. That you followed him. 
Look for a moment, hold your place there, but look for a moment over in Romans. I want to show you a passage that, that means so much to me. Romans chapter 2. Speaking of God in verse 6, it says, Who will render to each person according to his deeds. Now let's go on. Now, here, I love this text. This is so Spartan. It's so strong. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's, that's men right there. I remember one time I had to go off. My wife knew I was walking out of the house and I was going to walk into a battle. A battle of my life. And it was scary. And when I walked out the door, she looked at me and she know what she said? She said, Spartan, come back with your shield or carry it on top of it. You see, look at that. that look, you know, most men in Peru, there was a saying, they say, tu vives porque el aire es gratis. The only reason you're alive is because air is free. <laughs> That's the way so many men are. They have no reason to be alive. You know, I was talking to the young men. I said, you know, I was in, in Williamsburg in Virginia. It's where everyone still dresses like the colonial period and, and all that. It's really quite amazing. And some of the things that you learn there, you realize that the nobility of the men, the brilliance of the men, the courage of the men who sought to form this country. It was extraordinary. And yet... After 250 years or so, look what's left. They gave their lives, they gave their talents because they thought they were building something. But the thing they were building was a kingdom that could be corrupted. The scripture talks about, you know, the righteous man, he reigns, he builds, he does all these things, and then the wicked and the ignoble come right after him and destroy everything he's done, everything. So you want to join Solomon with the idea that it's just all meaningless, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. But we have a king and a kingdom that is incorruptible. I don't have many years left and I'm going to stand before him. And I want to be like those who by perseverance in doing good sought for glory and honor and immortality before their king. We have the privilege of having something to live for and die for. I was talking to some of these young boys and a few of them are rock climbers. And I said, that's, that's a really good thing to do. I said, but you have to be careful with things like rock climbing and bear hunting on the ground with a longbow. And that is becoming an adrenaline junkie. Because there's something that happens. The same reason when some people eat chocolate or some people kiss a girl for the first time. Or someone has a boar charging them or someone's hanging from a rock knowing that if they make a mistake here that it's going to be a spot on the pavement. There's adrenaline, and you never felt 
more alive. Those who serve Christ, who serve Christ's kingdom, they have that. I've got something to live for. I've got something to die for. And everything I do, even if it means just giving a cup of cold water to a disciple of Christ, I will not lose my reward. And I am building a kingdom. I am part of those who are building a kingdom that will not be destroyed, that is eternal, that is incorruptible, with glory and honor that is eternal. Isn't that amazing? We have something to live for. These men who have become, you know, multi-hundreds of billions of dollars and they own companies and they own all these things and everything. It is quite amazing. I don't want to take anything away from that. But they will die and their kingdom will go to someone else. If it endures their life age, it's still going to turn into nothing. That was Solomon's problem. But everything we do in the name of our God lasts forever. Now I give a testimony that one of the big landmarks in my life, one of the moments that really changed me was I just turned 17 and my father and I, we, we lived, we raised Charley cattle and, and quarter horses and we were rolling out wire. We were building a barbed wire fence. And you put the roll of wire. You got a rod going through it. One guy on one side, one guy on another. And you're walking out through there. And we were talking. And we were talking about the upcoming basketball season and all these different things. And all of a sudden, my dad yelled. I turned around. I saw him grab his chest. And he was staggering. He was a big man. I grabbed him. And he fell over. And I fell with him. And when I rolled him over, he was dead. And I realized at that moment, I mean, I wanted to be like my dad. My dad was fearless. Man, I saw him punch a cow one time. <laughs> I mean, he, he was amazing. He was smart. He was strong. He was respected. He was dead. He had a beautiful ranch, a lot of horses. He was dead. And I realized at that moment, Why? Why not just drink and, I don't know, whatever brings you joy because you're just going to die. And this is all absurd. This is a cruel joke. If there is a God, it's a cruel joke. And if there's not, well, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And I couldn't get that out of my mind. And then when I was in college, some guys kept coming around witnessing to me and I hadn't prayed since I was a little boy, but I prayed and I said, if you exist, please stop sending these guys to my room. <laughs> They're really bothering me. <laughs> but one of them gave me a Bible and I remember, no, actually he gave me a Bible, but that night it was my, my mom had put a, a Bible in my, uh, my luggage when I went off to the university, University of Texas. I remember getting that thing out and I was reading and it opened up to man's days are like grass as the flower of the field so he flourishes and when the wind passes over him he is no more and the place acknowledges him no more. I got so angry because that just reminded me of my dad's funeral. I mean people were talking about sports. I mean people who loved my dad that 
We're his friends, you know, but life goes on, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about. There's the funeral and you're talking about all kinds of other stuff. And when passes over him, he is no more and the place acknowledges him no more. I got so mad, I threw the Bible on the bed and just walked away. And then I came back and I read the next part. But the love of the Lord is everlasting on those who fear him. Everlasting. 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 Even though my body grows weak, even though I one day lay down as my father did, there is something everlasting now to live for. That changes everything. Why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you carousing? Why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you doing all this other stuff? Why aren't you seeking to be rich and live a comfortable life? Because there's a reason to live now. Well, everybody's got a reason to live. No, one that's eternal. There's a kingdom to build. And I'll walk down those streets of that kingdom for all eternity. There are people to save. You and the Marines, you and the SEALs, you run in, you storm that place, you deliver the hostages. That's an amazing thing you're doing, but they're still going to die. It's just a matter of time. You're a fireman, you do the same, they're still going to die. You're a doctor, you save a life, they're still going to die. I don't want to take away anything from what you've done. I applaud you for it, but they're still going to die. But we have a job and we have a message that when they get saved, they get saved for good. They get saved for good. And we will see them every day in eternity. With a beauty and a joy that if we caught a glimpse of it here on earth, it would fracture us and drive us insane. It would be too great for our minds to behold and to comprehend. You see, men live for something. And we have something to live for that lasts forever. Now he says, in verse 13, he says, be on the alert, in 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Be done in love. Now we gotta, we gotta really sit down and think about this, Why? This is not talking about a love song. This doesn't have any syrup on it. This isn't poetry. This is love. And our world has such a twisted view of what love is. Such a darkened, ugly, stupid, vain, meaningless view of love. You see... Here's a problem when you study the scriptures. Let, let me share with you. I was in systematic theology class many years ago in seminary. And the professor walked in and he said, now I just want all you guys, just give me, he went over to a chalkboard, he said, just list out for me attributes of God and I'm gonna put them on the board. And so, you know, God is holy, just, omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, went on and on and on and on. And I'm sitting there looking at it and it dawned on me something. So I guess I had some kind of weird look on my face. So after it was all done, the professor looked over at me, go, Washer, you looking like a, looking a little strange. What are you thinking? And I said, well, we have said absolutely nothing about God. And he said, well, what do you mean? 
He knew what I meant. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you put up about 20 or so attributes. But you take that attribute there holy. There's about 25 of us or so in this room right now. We could have 25 different definitions of what that means. So it's meaningless. All those terms you put up there mean nothing unless we go back and define them biblically. We can talk about them all day long. God's holy, God's just, God's righteous. But none of it means anything unless we understand what God himself means when he says, I'm holy. What God himself means when he says, I am love. And what is love? Well, we could spend the next several weeks going through that. But if you just bring it all down, if you look at like John 3.16 or 1 John 4, you find out that God, that love is self-giving. For God so loved the world, He gave. It is the giving of yourself. And that has two primary manifestations. And that is found in the greatest and the second greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Give yourself away to God. Give yourself away horizontally. Not just to somebody across the world that you don't know, but to the people closest to you. Give yourself away. We are so self-absorbed. We love when it's convenient. We love when we get something out of it. But love is self-giving. Love doesn't think too little of it. When someone loves, they're not thinking too little of themselves. They're not thinking too much of themselves. They're just not thinking about themselves. They're giving themselves away. Now people have given themselves away for a lot of really, really wrong things. There are men who give themselves away for money. There are men who, who work, you know, five days a week at a job they absolutely hate and they do it to make money or they do it just to have a weekend. I heard about one lord in England, I don't know if it's true, an urban legend, but back many, many few centuries ago who dedicated his entire life to just trying to raise a hamster with a figure eight on its back. I've seen men do things that were far more stupid than that. Love is giving ourselves away, but not in a monkish, twisted, pietistic sort of way. It's not, oh, woe is me, I'm giving myself away. I'm giving myself away because I'm giving myself to something, to something eternal. I'm giving myself away to Him. I'm giving myself away to those who are around me. Giving yourself away. So we act like men, not Neanderthals, not superheroes, men who live their life giving themselves away. Giving themselves away. Lord, I offer myself to you. 
And I offer myself to you every day, every hour, every time I'm tempted with sin. I offer myself to you. You offer yourself to your family. You offer yourself to the church. You offer yourself to the world. You offer yourself. That's what it means to act in love. To give yourself away. We are so consumed today about our own needs. Now, just with a a few more minutes. Actually, um, that was uh, the beginning of the introduction. So I guess we got a long road to go, don't we? Um, I just thought of that verse before I came up here. It's not even in the notes. So I guess we'll start now. Um, We're not going to stay much longer, but I do want to talk to you about a few things. We need to nail down some fundamentals, some very important fundamentals. I want to read to you. Manhood has has been all but lost in our post-Christian culture. Men have either been feminized or emasculated. That's one side. Or they have become selfish, pleasure-loving, lustful Neanderthals. That's on the other side. And both of them's wrong. They're just wrong. We must rediscover manhood as it is portrayed in Scripture and especially as it is represented by that one perfect man, the man, Christ Jesus. So, you know... <laughs> just cracks me up. So we realize that masculinity is all but lost, so a bunch of boys in skinny jeans gets a, get a few tattoos on their arm, and that's going to solve the problem? Really? Our preachers try to look cool, or they try to join some, you know, I don't know, martial arts class. Really? Is that what it's about? Well, some of you could probably do with a little less eating and a little more exercise. That's true. But it's about knowing Jesus and following Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, through the Scriptures. Now, I want you to look just for a moment. I'm just going to read to you the original purpose of man. In Genesis 1, 26, 28, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. What an incredible position and responsibility and privilege was given to man. And I believe this this continues until today. I believe man is to manage You know, we all hear all this silly stuff about the environment and all these goofy ideas and everything. And it's true. Some of it is absolutely pathetic. It's idolatrous. It's ridiculous. It's self-destructive. It's all these things. But at the core, there's some truth that on the other side has been neglected. We are responsible 
as sentient beings, as thinking beings, as being created in the image of God, we are responsible to be stewards of this earth. We are. And to manage things for the glory of God and according to God's will. And when you step outside of that purpose of the glory of God and you step outside according to his will as it is revealed in scripture, you get all the nonsense you're seeing today. Or you get all the terrible degradation of the environment caused by wicked men who are greedy and do not care. But we're to be men. We're to realize that God made this earth and he made it beautiful and he made it good and even though it is fallen, we have a responsibility to manage it unto his glory and according to his word. We have been made vice regents of this planet, not to rule as tyrants, but as servants according to the sovereign plan of God and according to his will. And we're to see everything that way. The church is to be managed, not according even to the will of the elders, but according to what is written in scripture and for the glory of God. A family is to be managed. Not according to some, you know, brutish idea of masculinity where man is king. No, the man is a servant leader who loves his family and therefore pours himself out. Do you want to know how do you tell if someone's a biblical man? They die very tired. Because they're pouring themselves out. They're pouring themselves out for the glory of God, for the benefit of their wife, the benefit of their children, the benefit of the church, and the benefit of those who do not know God. We have a purpose, and that purpose continues. I think in many ways, and we may get to this later, this original purpose with regard to creation, this commission, I believe in some ways has been restated in the Great Commission that we are responsible now to go out and how do we best manage the earth? Well, the earth is messed up because man is messed up and man is messed up because he's under the judgment of God and he's under the judgment of God because of sin and rebellion and there's only one cure for that and it's not conservative politics. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to go out into this world with the gospel proclaiming the gospel. And if we do, we won't make many friends on either side. Because when we go to the one side and say you are, you are wicked and perverted and you need Christ, and then the other side looks at us and says, that's right, we look at them and go, and woe to you also. Because all men are out of balance, all men are corrupt, all men are in trouble until they bow their knee to Jesus Christ. This is not about principles. This is about the gospel. 
all the principles in the world, all the Ten Commandments nailed to every wall, nothing is going to work except the power of the gospel preached by men who believe that the only thing that can save them is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the only thing that can save this world and straighten it out is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Adam and Eve were given such a commission in the garden, how much more do we have a commission because the only way to manage this world is to reconcile it to God. And that happens through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look quickly at a few things that's so very important. I want to look at, at you. And I want to look at me and what we are. Because we have been told recently that we are just biological matter. That we're in some even digital maze and a false reality. Man has been taught every sort of thing that we are just this thing that has evolved. What are we? Well, we're created in the image of God. And there is something of that image in every human being on this planet. And that's what gives every human being on this planet, even those who hate us, that's what makes them special. They were created in the image of God and something of that image still remains in them. You were created in the image of God. And I just want to run through a few things that are very, very important. Personality. Adam and Eve were personal and self-conscious creatures. They were not mere animals driven by instinct or machines programmed to respond to certain stimuli. This stands in direct opposition to the teaching of evolution and most of what is taught to young men through media and college and university and even in some seminaries. You are not to be, you, if you are Christian, you are not a machine to be manipulated by men or demons. If you are a Christian, you are not to be driven by your own instinct. You're not to be driven by the lust of the flesh. You are to know and submit your life to the will of God. Spirituality. The scriptures declare that God is spirit and so it is reasonable to expect to find the same attribute in man who was created in God's image. Adam and Eve were more than animated clay and so are you. They were spiritual, endowed with a genuine capacity to know God, fellowship with God, respond to God in obedience, adoration, and thanksgiving. This is a direct contradiction to materialism. Listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Look at Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. There's something that happened to you if you became a Christian. It put you in an impossible predicament and set you at odds with the world. And what is that? The Puritans would say something like this, that if you have truly become a Christian, that your heart has become so enlarged, your heart has become so enlarged that if you were to inherit the entire earth, it could not satisfy you. If you were given the universe, it could not satisfy you because your heart has been so enlarged. And if you were to lose everything, it could not throw you into depression 
because it would be considered an insignificant thing. Your heart is so enlarged that the only one that can fill it is God. And you say, well, I don't believe what the Bible teaches. Well, then believe your own secular history. How many men, even today and throughout history, have walked in misery after gaining the entire world? How many of them have put a gun to the head and ended their life after having everything? How many people have achieved fame, notoriety, basically worship and wealth and everything else, and in the end they say it is all rot? I remember years and years ago, I was going to a wedding of my family, and some of them quite wealthy, and it was up in Detroit, and... I saw the wealth of people and I had just, I had given myself, surrendered as you say, to the ministry. All my, since I was a boy I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a lawyer just to make money. But I had surrendered myself to the ministry. And I remember going there and watching all those people, it was by a beautiful lake And I got so sad, uh, really looking at all that maybe could have been and realizing it was no longer even a possibility for me. I went into a car garage. It was a very large house, had a very big garage. And I just wept. I wept. And then I kind of got a hold of myself and I walked out and there was a, a man sitting in a chair, I'll never forget, he looked very, very old. He had a drink in his hand, and, uh, and he fixed his eyes on me, and he said, come here. I walked over to him, and he goes, you see that man right there standing on the dock? I said, yes, sir. Had a man standing on the dock with a real nice suit, tie, very dignified-looking man in his 40s. He goes, if I tell him to jump in the canal... Jump in the canal. I'm, I have power. People fear me. And I have money. I have money. And he said, boy, boy, listen to me. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I have nothing. And I was like, Wow, am I so weak that God has to do such a providential miracle to strengthen me. But do you see? Do you see? Nothing, nothing will fill you. Nothing will fill you. And when my dad died that time, I was thinking, you know, okay, if... If I attain to his intellect, my dad was a very intelligent man, I'm going to die. If, if I'm respected in the community as, as he is, I'm going to die. If I'm as strong, he was my height, but just a lot bigger. If I'm strong like him, I will die. If I fall in love, I will die. That woman will die. My children will die. None of this matters. 
You see? That, that's, that's why a wise man, and Solomon talks about this, that wisdom can bring great sadness. But sometimes it's just better to be a fool. <laughs> like most people. Really? They're excited about the next movie that comes out or the next video game that comes out or the next car or what their neighbors think about them or the house or the kind of brand on their clothing. They're no better than the English lord who tried to make a hamster with a figure eight on its back. So look at us. We were made with a personality. We were made with spirituality. And knowledge, in Colossians 3.10, the scriptures describe one aspect of the image of God as having a true knowledge of God. This does not mean that Adam and Eve knew everything that you could know about God, but it meant that what they did know was true. That you and I can know God. This may be the greatest offense that we commit against Him. That having the capacity to know God, we do not stretch ourselves forth to know him. Let me talk to you a minute about eschatology, study of last things, eternity. Let me talk to you a moment. Eternity presents a real philosophical problem. I mean a real philosophical problem. Why? Well, it seems that even in a perfect world, eventually, it would just become like a hell. Well, why? The sheer monotony of it. I mean, you can only walk down streets of gold and swing on gates of pearl so long when you're pretty bored. I mean, I'm, I'm 60 and I'm pretty much bored on everything in this earth. Nothing really excites me anything anymore. So how do you, I mean, how do you exist in eternity Forever and ever and ever and not eventually just want to be annihilated. Because creation is finite, right? It has an end to it. So sooner or later you're going to get to the end of it and then what? Yeah, but here's the thing. Heaven's not about creation. It's not about a finite creation no matter how spectacular and beautiful. It's about an infinite God. Sometimes young people have asked me, when I get to heaven, will I know everything? Well, no, but you'll know, you'll know a lot. But you won't know everything. Why? Because God is infinite in glory, infinite in beauty, infinite in joy. And, and when you, after 10,000 eternities, you will not even have reached the foothills of his joy, the foothills of his beauty or the foothills of your own glory. Because even in heaven, I believe, I agree with Edwards, that we go from glory to glory to glory to glory. And you never reach the end because there is no end to God. But remember, when does eternal life begin? It doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you're born again. And what is eternal life? Knowing God. And so when should this magnificent pursuit, when should it begin? The moment we're converted. 
Your laziness with regard to Scripture is an, a direct affront to the majesty of God. And it demonstrates your unbelief. You need to be told that. I need to hear that. You do. You're like a child who gets the most exquisite gift. After opening the box, you look at the gift and throw it away and play with the box. Do you see? The knowledge of God is your privilege. It is my privilege. And we are to fix upon that, to know him. Now, you have to be very careful here. Why? Because a lot of times in reform circles, this relationship with God is defined by how much you know and how correct everything is. Well, I want you to know, theology and doctrine is extremely important. And Christianity is not less than right thinking. The problem is, it's more than right thinking. It is experiencing Him. It is knowing God. One of the things that I like to teach on is is just this knowledge of God It is not confined to a church service. It's not even confined to what you would consider to be the realm of religion and spirituality. It's it's everything. A young man pulls off a, a young Christian pulls off a 600 pound deadlift for the first time. He ought to be able to do that to the glory of God and rejoice in it. A runner ought to be able to run a marathon and feel God's presence. A father ought to walk into a kitchen and grab his little daughter and dance into the living room with madness and joy and laughter unto the glory of God. It's life. It's based on truth, but it's not just intellectual knowledge of truth. It is life. It is joy. And one of the reasons why our young children are not enamored with this God is because they don't see that. They don't see that. As I shared with the men today, a, a quote, I'll share it with you another one. There is a joy in the journey. There's a light we can love on the way. There is a wildness and wonder to life and freedom for those who obey. Michael Card. A wonder and wildness. That's what the knowledge of God should lead us to. And then I want to just look at a few things really quick. I know we've gone long, but 
self-determination. Adam and Eve were created with a will. They possessed the power of self-determination and they were granted the freedom to choose. This teaching of Scripture stands in direct opposition to evolution. Listen to me. I believe, I, I hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. I love the Westminster Confession. I am thoroughly, with regard to soteriology, with regard to the decrees of God, I am thoroughly within the context of historic Reformed Christianity. I believe that God has decreed all things. I believe God knows the future, not because he looked forward through some crystal ball or even omniscience. He knows the future because he's the author of it. I believe all of that. Yet at the same time, I have not because I ask not. At the same time, my life suffers every time I disobey his will. You and I need to realize that there are choices to be made. Choose you this day whom you will serve. What will you do? I have a dear friend, one of the greatest theologians, I believe, alive today, Sam Waldron, and he wrote a book, What You Must Do to Be Saved. There are choices to make, men. Don't just sit there and use the sovereignty of God as some sort of of excuse. That's never in Scripture. Young men ask me out there, you know, as the world gets worse and, and you know, we've decre- we know that God has decreed and, and this and everything, that there's going to be suffering and tribulation and, and, you know, the great tribulation and all these other things, how are we to respond? I said, we're to fight. We are to fight with everything we have. I'm so sick and tired. Do you honestly think just because the United States of America is going through some rough times right now that that means that the apocalypse is coming? Really? Brothers, we don't know what's going to happen. There could be a revival tonight. All of China could be converted. The great preachers and theologians right now that are in Africa could rise up and God use them to change the entire world. What are you talking about circling the wagons? What's wrong with you? You going to go hide? We need to make a choice every day. Choose you this day who you will serve. For whom will you fight? How will you live? What will you do? What choice will you make? And know that those choices, oh, they have consequences. Whether or not you're going to shut that program off because you just saw something ungodly on it, those choices have consequences. They have consequences. And why do they have consequences? Here's another thing I want to share with you. Immortality. Although Adam and Eve were created and therefore had a beginning and although every moment of their very existence depended upon the kindness of their creator, they were endowed with an immortal soul. You have an immortal soul. Once created, it would never cease to exist. In some sense, everybody has eternal life. It's the question is, how are you going to spend it? In heaven or in hell? Every person you see has eternal life. In heaven or in hell? 
The immortality of the soul should lead all men to carefully consider the awesome responsibility of self-determination. Since the soul is eternal, the choices we make will bear eternal consequences from which there may be no escape. I used to tell my boys, particularly, I'd tell them this. I said, boys, you're in trouble right now. You're, you're, you're nine years old. You're 10 years old. Daddy rush in. He fixes it. Boys, there can come a time when you guys make the wrong choice. And you're going to look at dad in a police station and say, dad, help me. Do something. And I'm going to say, son, if I could give my life for you right now, I'd do it. But I can't. You made a choice. And you're going to have to live with it. And even if I wanted to, there's nothing I could do about it. Some of you young people, you may sit there and think, on the day of judgment, I'm going to cry out, mommy, daddy, help me. No, I'm sorry. On the day of your condemnation, even your parents will raise their hands in worship to God and say, the God of all the earth has done right in his judgment of you. There are eternal consequences to our self-determination. And not just with regard to salvation, but with regard to sanctification. Every time you choose some frivolous thing over the nurture of your soul, you're saying, I really don't care to grow. And we've all done it, including this preacher. I'm just tired. I don't want to study anymore. I don't want to pray anymore. Self-determination is a bad thing, even if there was an, or it is an important and critical thing, even if there was annihilation, but there's no annihilation. The soul once created goes on forever. I just want to say this. Being what we are, we cannot be content. We will not be content with anything other than God. But men, look at me. I mean, look, men, look. Most of us, some of us are going to be dead in a year. Most of us are going to be dead in 15, 20 years. Everybody in here is going to be dead in 100 years. You say, well, I don't believe Jesus is going to come back for 1,000 years. Yeah, but you're going to be going to see him in less than 75, so you need to <laughs> you get some things straight. Do you see what I'm saying? And this is not just about salvation. Men... Men are not created to be passive. We're created to be in a fight. We're created to do something. I think it was John Adams said this, and this is, uh, I'm just barely getting everything he said in the quote, but he said something like, I must study war so that my sons can study architecture and commerce so that my grandchildren can study art and literature. We're in, a, we're in that. We must study war. We must live and breathe to fight, to advance the kingdom. For the glory of God and for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. My brother 
is every person who calls upon the name of the Lord. My sister is every woman that calls upon the name of the Lord. I spend most of my time not thinking much about America. I'm thinking about Afghanistan. I'm thinking about China. I'm thinking about Africa. I'm thinking about the Korwai people in one of the darkest jungles in in Papua, Indonesia. Those are my brothers, my sisters. They're suffering. That's another thing I want you to see. This is not just about evangelism. It's about taking care of the body of Christ. We have people, our people, our people who tonight will suffer for Christ. That should make you mad. That should make you stop worrying about football or whatever you worry about. This should make you think, I'm going to live for them. I remember when we turned over, just walked out of Afghanistan. I've taught Afghani Christians in the desert. I knew what was going to happen to them. They would be slaughtered like pigs. Something had to be done. There are brothers and sisters, they're our people. That's another reason why we fight, man. That's another reason why we live. We live for them. I used to, when I would go into the jungle, sometimes my wife would go with me, but there were places and times during the war where my wife would not accompany me. Why? Because if the corrupt military or terrorists or something pull me off a bus and start pushing me around, no big deal. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But if they laid one finger on my wife... It changes everything. But I have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers all over the world right now. And sons and daughters that are suffering atrocities. Who do not have what they need. We live for them. We live for the greater body They are my people. Everybody today talking about their people. Well, I got a people too. It's everyone who calls on the name of Christ. And to live and die for them. That's what men do. That's what men do. That's what men do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please help us, dear God to be like Christ, to live for Christ. Lord, if there's someone here tonight, you have struck their heart. You who began a good work, Lord, fulfill your promises, complete that work. In Jesus' name, amen.